You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am super excited to have Lindsay Cameron on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called Just One Look. And let me tell you what, when when you get a book... Um, and it it it's one of those books that just won't let you go when you say, I'm just going to read a chapter and then I'll put the book down. And then the next thing you know, well, we'll I can't just leave it at that. I've got to keep going. And, you know, the next thing you know, you look up and you, you're holding your finger halfway in the book because you don't want to lose your place. And, you know, half a day has gone already. Just one look is absolutely one of those books, and it is one that you must purchase this summer. Um, all that said, welcome to the show, Lindsay. Thanks so much for having me, and thank you for the kind words about the book. Oh, you're so welcome, and it's absolutely true. Um, Lindsay, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? That's such a great question. Um, I was actually pretty young. I was probably in the second grade and my sister was in the fourth grade and I really wanted her to come outside and play with me, but she had homework. She had to write a short story. I was really eager to have her come play. So I had said, well, I'll write that short story for you. And I remember that I wrote a story about the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus trading places. And my sister loved the story and handed in the story to her teacher, who wrote a very nice note about what a great story it was. And I just realized that I loved that process. I loved the process of writing the story. I loved entertaining people with my words. And after that, I just always had a journal or a diary. And it just really became something that was part of my life. So you're, you know, that that inclination to, oh, I'll write a story for you. Did um, did that ever strike you as odd that that would be um, kind of a, a default answer that that did you ever look back and say, I, I wonder why I was so confident that I could do that? I mean, I don't know. I think when you're a younger child, you're just used to doing things for an older child, like just to get <laughs> them to come and play with you. So it's like, right. story, yeah, great. I could do that. Oh, that's so funny. Um, did uh, were there ever any people in your life, maybe a parent, maybe a teacher um, who saw this gift in you and or the storytelling gene, if if you want to look at it that way um, and and encouraged that? Um, I had a lot of great teachers who told me that that was a skill that I had and I should um, pursue something with that skill. But for me, it was I mean, being an author felt like as big of a dream as being a professional baseball player or an astronaut. It just wasn't like a career choice that I thought that I could make. Gotcha. Um, so, 
you know, you you're a, a, a natural born storyteller that this starts to come out. And did, did do you remember when, um, even though it seems so kind of far fetched that this would be something that you could do, do you remember, uh, you know, if there was ever a time where you you said, you know, maybe not right away, but one day I will write a novel and and, uh, you know, whether it goes anywhere or not, I, I'm going to accomplish this one thing with my life. That didn't come until much older. That was actually when I already had a career. I was working as a lawyer and I knew that it was something I didn't want to do long term. And when I was there, um, I came up with the idea for my first book and I just knew whether or not that book went anywhere. I just really wanted to write it. And I tried when I was working as a lawyer to in any of my spare time to write. But when you're working in a corporate firm in New York, there is no spare time. And so eventually I had to leave that job because I just really wanted to write the book. I really wanted to at least try. So as, as someone who uh, is a storyteller, what drew you to the law? Um, I've I've met quite a number of writers who um, were lawyers at one time or, or still practice law while writing fiction. What drew you to the law? Well, I think a lot of people who enjoy writing are drawn into law school. You're almost kind of funneled there because you're always told by teachers or professors that your papers are really well done. And so you look, where can I apply the skill of writing? And being a lawyer is one place to apply that skill. Do you, you know, when you're in that stage of your life, do you ever, um, you know, look at that as uh, a compromise of sorts? Uh, you know, that that even though, um, you know, practicing law definitely um, can take advantage of of good writing skills and even even uh, storytelling, fiction writing um, can not that you know lawyers write fiction. I'm not saying that, um, <laughs> but <laughs> but knowing how to engage someone and knowing how to tell a story surely comes in uh, beneficial for a lawyer. But does does it ever feel like a compromise? I mean, it doesn't at the time because. When it's a goal that you're working towards, when you're like, oh, I would like to go to law school, so I'm going to work really hard to get the grades to go to law school, it feels like that it feels like an accomplishment. But for me, when I was doing it, it just didn't feel like a lifelong accomplishment. It didn't feel like something I wanted to stick with every day. And then it, when you're no longer enjoying it, then it does start to feel like a compromise. You're not doing what you'd like to be doing. You're doing what you trained to do gotcha so your first book that you published big law um was this the first book that you wrote it was the first book that i wrote yeah it was it was the idea that i came up with at the firm and um left to write that book so so tell me about how this idea came about um did it did it begin with a character did it did you start imagining um you know, the scenario in a law firm, how, what was the genesis? What was that germ that began the story? It was definitely the setting that began the story because 
like a lot of people, I would watch legal shows on TV or you would hear stories about lawyers and they just weren't what the reality was. Like it just, you know, was the Hollywood version. So when I was working at a large firm in New York and it's just a really odd place to be and completely different than what you see on TV. And so there was one night when I was sitting at my desk and it was probably like three o'clock in the morning and I was still at work and I just ordered in food for three o'clock in the morning. And I just thought <laughs> this, this whole life here is nothing like you would see on TV. And it's actually really crazy. And somebody should write a book about this. And then I'm thinking, well, wait, I should write a book about this. And right then, even at three o'clock in the morning, I grabbed a notebook and I just started scratching down all these notes, all these like funny scenarios that had happened in meetings or things like that. And I actually kept writing in that notebook probably for about six months. And I was always so worried somebody would find my notebook that I had all these notes. in, <laughs> And so I would bring it home every single day. And uh, that notebook and all those notes is what eventually became Big Law. Now, uh, you can dream up, um, you know, fascinating scenarios, hilarious ones, or even, you know, edge of your seat scenarios. But until you develop a character to inhabit um, the setting and to live out these scenarios, um, you know, we as readers don't have anything to to latch on to. Where did the, the character of Mackenzie Corbett come in? Um. With her, I would say that she's a little bit based off of me, um, but she's also based off of a lot of other young female lawyers who I came into contact with. She's kind of a compilation of a number of different people. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, as when did you realize that this was, um, you, you know, there are there are ideas and then there are like really good ideas, you know, the ones that you you know, this is not going to leave me alone. I'm I'm going to need to to run this uh, story idea out to see where it goes. It, it, kind of what what was the point where you realized that that this was a really good idea? With the first book or with yeah, with, with the first law? book, yeah, with, with, with book, Big Law. With Big Law, it was really that um, it, the process of writing in the notebook. I. I the fact that it wouldn't leave me for like a good six months and it wasn't even that I had started to sit down and write it it was just I thought there's so much material here like I just felt like it was it was a book that was writing itself although in the end it did not write itself but when I was taking the <laughs> notes it felt like it was that's such a good feeling when it when 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 it feels like you're just grabbing it out of the ether, like like the mm -hmm. story's alive and it's it's your job to to chase it down. Yes. Yeah, it was good. So then you finished the book. Um, how did you know when when you had a finished story in your hand and, and you know, maybe had done some revision and felt good about it, uh, you know, for yourself? How did you then go about, you know, finding it, its place in the world and finding publishing and agent and all that stuff? Well, I actually ended up getting a little bit lucky because I, so I wrote that book in secret. Like I didn't tell anybody I was writing that. My husband knew, but 
even close friends didn't even know I was doing it. And mostly because I just wasn't sure it was going to go anywhere. And it was just something personally that I wanted to do. But once I finished with the book and I felt like this is something that could go somewhere, um, I actually had a friend who was a writer and she had a literary agent. So I said to her, I haven't told you this, but I wrote this book. And she had also worked with me at the same firm. So she was very excited about the book. Um, and she was just said, let me send this to my agent. And she sent it to my agent uh, or to her agent. And that agent also used to work at a large law firm. So she read it and just really understood what the book was about and where I wanted to go with it. And so um, I signed with her and we worked on the book together. So so then when the when the book is published and it, it uh, you know, finds itself into the hands of lots of readers and uh, and then you're you're faced with that uh, that terrifying prospect for a lot of people of now what do I follow it up with? Um, you know, the the old um, you know, second book dilemma that that a lot of people find themselves in. And and just one look definitely doesn't feel like a book that came out of that um you know that that second novel um you know place that a lot of people find themselves in. It's it is so fresh and and so exciting. where did the idea for this next book come from? Well, I actually had come up with the germ of the idea um, even before Big Law. It, there, was a, there was an incident that happened at my firm um, that I just found really intriguing, which was we had a, a group of temps in the firm who were reviewing correspondence for litigation um, involving one of the firm's clients. And it was actually a client that I did quite a bit of work for. And uh, we came to find out that as a result of a glitch, a number of different people's inboxes were put in the review folder of the temps. And the <laughs> IT people wouldn't tell us whose inboxes, who, who that had happened to. They only told us after the fact that this had been stopped. And so everybody was so paranoid of what, whose was in there, what was read, and it just sort of struck me at the time how much information we have about ourselves and our email and what, how we would feel if that got into the wrong hands. And so that, that idea, I came home and told my husband about at the time, and we kind of talked about it, but then I, I sort of put it aside and um, didn't think about it for a long time. And so after Big Law, I um, wrote a different book. I wrote about a third of a different book and then just it it wasn't going anywhere. And I thought, no, this isn't this isn't my next book. And I was just kind of really grasping for another idea. And my husband said, well, what about that idea you had way back in the beginning about attempts in the email? And when he said it, I was like, yes, that is the book that I should be writing right now. And um it also didn't write itself, but it felt like it would write itself. <laughs> Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. 
PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new, easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process. The concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline. 12 beats and three acts. Each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board. 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Right. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000-word book, it's about two cards per chapter, roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let Plot Pins help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off Plot Pins. PlotPins.com. So, again, um, you've got this fantastic idea for a story, but, um, but you know, the, it, it really resonates in the character of Cassie Woodson. Um, when where did cassie come from and and how did you develop a character that you know that by the end of the book and i'm i'm trying to choose my words so i don't give too much of the book away <laughs> but by the end we have a very different feeling um of cassie than when the book starts um but you know you you are very careful to make cassie a character that is very easy to to latch onto and to sort of um 
befriend in a in a in a book friend kind of way. You know, you feel like you know Cassian, and it's easy to sympathize with her. Um, how did you start crafting this character that you would use to take us on such a roller coaster ride? Well, Cassie really evolved over my drafts. I had a number of different drafts, and she was probably pretty different in the first draft. Um, in each draft, I would say she got a little bit, almost a little bit darker, like sort of things were not going well for Cassie with each new draft. But also her her voice really came to me each time, how she would respond to things um what was going on in her past and what was going on her in her life just really came to me with each new draft probably if you compared Cassie from the first draft to what was in the book it it's a very different character i think that happens for a lot of writers that in your first draft you're just really getting to know these people that you're writing about and you you make some mistakes of how they would handle certain things but by the final draft, I just felt like I knew this person, like I knew myself. I knew she, how she would, what she would say, what she would think, how she would act. So from your personal experience of knowing that uh, that this actually happened in your law firm where people were um, maybe possibly reading through um, emails that, that, you know, that, that belong to you to then thinking about how the scenario would work with um with a character like Forrest Watts and 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 Cassie um accidentally um reading his emails and then you know kind of becoming obsessed with that um where did the character of 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 Forrest come from Well Forrest is probably I would say um a compilation of different people who I encountered at the firm you know, um, sort of a pretty confident person um, with a life that on the outside looks ideal, um, at least to somebody like Cassie, it looks ideal. And he's probably just a compilation of different people who I encountered. Gotcha. So it it sounds like that uh, you are the kind of writer that in your first draft, you you're really using that to get to know the characters and to lay out the plot and and to, you know, get from point A to point Z. Um, when you start your revision process, when that first draft is done and, you know, OK, this is the journey of the characters. This is, um, uh, you know, I, I understand kind of the, the lay of the story. When you start revision, what are some of the things that you look for um, to tighten up or to maybe add more detail, more add more suspense? Um, do you begin revision with a plan in mind or do you just come to the story blank and, and you know, just kind of see what needs fixing? It's usually a little bit of a plan because usually what I think of the character and their backstory at the beginning of the book, by the time I'm writing the end of the book, I'm already thinking, okay, I've got to change that in the beginning because I've sort of learned more about them. I've learned more the direction that this book is going. So I'll keep a different notebook as I'm going along of things I already know that I need to go back and change. 
but I try not to go back and edit as I go. I'm trying just to get this draft down. And so I will keep a notebook that things, something has changed, like maybe something in their, in their past is now doesn't exist or something like that. And so it's a little bit of a plan based on what I learned at the end of that draft. And so then I'll go back a full another uh, go through of the draft and change those things I knew I was going to change. But also by the time I reach the end of that revision, I usually have more stuff that I'm like, okay, now I know all my characters even better. I have to go back and change this because they would never do that or they would never think that or just that kind of thing. The uh, the the character of Cassie um, has some uh, some personal issues. She, she's working as a temp um, because she uh, was let go from her from her previous job. Um, how did the character of Cassie grow in the telling of the story? And did you did it, were there character traits that you added to her? You know, after the fact in, in the in the revision, maybe that helped to uh, define her character more. Yeah, I would say um, she'd always sort of had a tumble down the corporate ladder, um, which is why she was working as a temp. But um, I think that her just acute loneliness really um, evolved. Because why why would somebody be so struck by an email that they're coming across? They really have to have something in their life, something that they're seeking. And for Cassie, um, you know, she's seeking to be loved and it's something that we're all seeking, but she has this just desperate need for it because she doesn't feel it at home um, and she doesn't feel it from a partner. She certainly isn't getting it from her job. And so um, she's just really seeking it, which is why she is so struck by this email from Forrest and his wife and why she sees it as something that would be everything that she would want. There are some some pretty great twists and turns um, in in the narrative. Uh, when when you're in the revision process, do you start looking for places to misdirect readers to um, can pull the rug out from under them when they least expect it? Do 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 you have a a process for for you know, kind of figuring out at what point in the story you know a twist or a turn is needed? Um, how, how do you start thinking about that? Well, I, I'm kind of a, um, a pantser, but I have a general overall plot. I kind of know how it's going to start and how it's going to finish. And then I've got to figure out how to get from point A to point B. And usually while I'm doing while I'm doing that, something as I'm writing the scene, I think, oh, I can stick something else in here, which is, you know, kind of a twist or maybe a red herring, who knows. Um, and that just sort of comes along with that process. After publishing Big Law, um, was there any feedback that you got on your first book that then uh, maybe informed or, or changed uh, anything when you're writing the second book? Did Did any I guess what I'm asking is uh, any feedback uh, from readers, from editors, from from whomever, um, was that helpful or uh, ultimately did you have to, you know, put away all all of the feedback that you got on your writing to delve into this book? 
Well, Big Law is, is a slightly different genre. It's more women's fiction. Um, but when I was writing it, my agent at the time had said, I think we should make the pacing more in line with a thriller. And I actually hadn't really read any thrillers at the time. And so I went to the bookstore and got, you know, 10 different thrillers because I needed to kind of figure out what she was talking about with this to really study what she meant by the pacing of a thriller. And when I was reading these books, I just fell in love with the genre. I loved the pacing. I loved tension. I loved just, you know, that feeling that you have to turn the pages. And it was too late in my in my current book to switch it to a thriller. But I thought the next book I write, I'm going to be writing it, a thriller, a suspense book. Um, and so I would say that process really made it so I thought I, I enjoyed writing women's fiction. But now I really I feel like thriller is my genre. That blows me away that you are not a thriller fan uh, from the beginning, because this this feels like you know someone that's very intimate with the with the genre and that that you're you, you get the feeling that you're writing out of a love for the genre which you obviously are um but i'm 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 amazed that that you came to the genre at the point that you did that's fascinating yeah well i it it is out of a love for the genre because i did end up loving it but you're right with that. It's not like a, a lifelong love. But what I what I ended up doing was just really studying it. You know, like I would read a certain book and then love how it was paced. And so, you know, the first time I would read it is purely for pleasure. And then the next time was really studying, like when did they put in the twist? When did they um, have it slow paced? And then when did the pace pick up? It was more almost like a textbook for me the second time around. What were some of the the um, the thrillers that that you loved? Uh, um, I loved Caroline Kepnes's You. Oh, yeah. um, that one just really blew me away. Something completely different. Um, I think, like every person who was coming to thrillers at that time, I loved Gone Girl. Um, but I also loved some of the older stuff. I loved like Patricia Highsmith stuff and Stephen King. Um, so many of the people were just, you know, masters of that genre. That's amazing. Well, Just One Look is available every now, everywhere now. When you're hearing this, uh, you can grab it in Kindle edition or hardcover. Uh, it's also in audiobook. Have you listened to the audiobook yet, Lindsay? I haven't. I've listened to the narrator, a clip of the narrator, um, who I really, I actually got to select from they sent the producer sent me over like a group of six different narrators each reading a clip from just one look um and i love the narrator i selected i think she really embodies cassie um and i think she'll do a great job well after reading the arc of this i, I can't wait to get the audio of it i, I think it's going to be a fantastic experience um we're going to put links to it in the show notes of this episode uh, no matter which format you like to read in you can grab it today when you're hearing this or go to your local bookstore and uh support local bookstores uh lindsay if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do where can they find you online um well they can find me at lindsayjcameron.com um i'm also on instagram at lindsay cameron author and i would love to connect with readers there excellent we'll put links to that in the show notes 
Lindsay, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you so much, Hank, for having me. Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade, Forgotten Ruin, Book Two, by Jason Ansbach and Nick Cole, narrated for you by Christopher Ryan Grant. Chapter One, the army of the dead walked straight into our ambush east of Fortress Hawthorne. That's what the fob is called now, Fortress Hawthorne. Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne, as was originally intended when the 50 detachments of various special operations groups came forward through time from Area 51, a one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nanoplague destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. About 10,000 years too late. Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons. Which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous PFC Kennedy. But the Rangers just call it the FOB. The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the Army of the Dead advancing on us? Claymore Mines, the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne, had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton, were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush, only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymore's sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us, and an early one at that. But there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors carrying spear and shield other, darker creatures barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still, the brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channel the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead 
into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching army of the dead continued on their current course track, they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain we'd kill them there. And I was sweating. Not because of fear. No, not at all. Firing, whispered Sergeant Kang over the comm as he detonated the mines. And eight daisy-chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. Skeletons. Warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the Bronze or Iron Ages. Worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales. Green and tarnished stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some, rotting boots, helms with broken horns, missing teeth, tattered leather kilts, beads and charms dangling from bone wrists, enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here draped about the spine where the throat should be. Where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence. Malignantly so. Walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now. Except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical, yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.